0: amen. All right. Let's go Habakkuk chapter one. Habakkuk chapter one. And I know some of y'all are like, where? (laughs) Um, We'll put our um, text for the morning up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, If you're watching us from home, watching us online, uh, we'll also put our text for the morning up on your screen when that time comes around. Uh, We'll get to there in a second. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to to reveal himself to his people. Uh, We want you to know God. That's what we're about here. Uh, We're always trying to push people to to be reading their Bibles more because we believe that God actually will use it in a gigantic kind of way. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, we can actually fix that pretty easily. And so contact me after we're done, whether you're in the room here or you're watching online. Get a hold of me somehow, and we can put an end to the fact that you don't have a Bible. We can handle it too sweet. Habakkuk chapter 1. If you are using a digital Bible, you may have just typed it into the search. Uh, that's okay. Uh, you might need to know how to spell it. H-A-B-A-2Ks U K. Alright, if you get those backwards, all kinds of problems will occur. Um, if you are using a physical Bible, I'm gonna give you an extra second and a half to get there. Uh, you can use your table and contents if you need to. Uh, if it helps, it's between Nahum and Zephaniah. You're welcome. All right. And so Habakkuk chapter 1. All right, so we try around here to uh, bounce back and forth uh, between different types of sermon series. Uh, and so uh, we will, um, on occasion, we'll bounce back and forth. Uh, we'll, we'll do a series that walks through a book of the Bible, and then after we're done with that, we'll do a series that focuses on a specific topic and all those kinds of things. And so we're due now for a series through a book. And it also, is just so happens, that I have been here about three and a half years now, and I have yet to preach through an Old Testament book. And I ain't going to let that happen anymore, all right? And so this summer is a good summer to make, like, that go away. We're going to fix that this summer, and we're going to go through the book of Habakkuk together, all right? And so you may be asking, why Habakkuk then? I mean, why not something like Exodus, where everybody knows what it is and, you know, what the story is? Or not, why not at least one of the, you know, the prophets that everybody knows a little bit more about, all right? Why Habakkuk? Uh, it's because the world that Habakkuk is staring at as he writes this letter, writes this book, I don't think it's all too dissimilar from our own. I think what Habakkuk is staring at has a lot of similarities between him and what we're staring at. Now, don't mishear me. I I, I don't think for even a moment that we are Old Covenant Israel. Right. I don't think uh, that we're on the same trajectory as them because God hasn't made the same promises to us, the same uh, uh, deals with us as he did with them, but that, that doesn't mean that everything is different. While, while we're not Old Testament Israel, that doesn't mean that the worlds are entirely unlike all right? There's some similarities here, some significant parallels we could say, and and I think that Habakkuk's experience as he's watching the world around him can help us, you and me, navigate through some of the stuff that we're watching play out in our own culture, watching play out all around us, and maybe more importantly, experiencing in our own hearts as we watch it play out. I think there's some incredible parallels there that, that we ought to pay attention to, and the best way that I know how to Really, kind of bring you to that realization, bring you to, to agreeing with me that we need to be paying attention to Habakkuk, is to actually give you the history, all right? And to actually back up the story and just kind of set the scene for you. And so, the shortest answer to the why did or when did Habakkuk write this book question, the shortest answer to what time period, what's the context of Habakkuk's writing, the short answer is just a few years before the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile. But there's a whole bunch of stuff, a world buried in that statement that needs to be unpacked. And so we've got to back up a little bit further than the immediate context. And, and so if you're talking about God's people, you really need to go to the very beginning of God's people. Might as well start at the very beginning of the Jewish people. God comes to a pagan man named Abram and he makes him a gigantic, eternity-shaping promise, Right? God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you be a blessing. I'm going, to get, I'm going to make your family a great nation. And so God is going to turn this one idolatrous old man into a nation of people marked by his name. A nation of people that are supposed to represent him to the world. He's going to bless them, and they're going to be a blessing. And that's a really cool story, except for the fact that for the next thousand years, you don't see much of that. Yes, God blows up Abraham's family, he makes them into a great nation, but about 4 to 500 years after that promise is made, they're just getting out of slavery in another nation. And then they travel through the wilderness for a generation. And then, when they finally get to that promised land, you know, that land that's flowing with milk and honey, you know, that really special place that God had promised them all those generations before, when they finally get to the, th- the finish line, the threshold, they, they have to enter that place by incredible violence and bloodshed. Like the period of the judges happens right on, after that. Generation after generation after generation, a giant mess of idolatry and rampant sin and God having to rescue them out of their own stupidity. That's the period of the judges. So on the backside of all that, that thousand years after God's promise, they start demanding a king. We want to be like all the other nations. Give, me, give us a king. We, we need a king. If we had a king, all of our problems would go away. And God tries to warn them, and it's not what's gonna happen. You don't know what you're asking for, but He goes ahead and He lets them have a king and even lets them pick them himself. And they decide to go with who? Saul. Why do they pick Saul? Because he's taller than everybody else and can fight the bad guys. That's their grand plan. That's the king that they want. And if even, even if you don't know that story in the Bible, you can probably guess how that goes. The answer is badly, it goes terrible. Saul is a train wreck. He walks in open, defiant sin. And so God says that, well, he's going to pick the next king. He doesn't look at what man sees. He looks upon the heart. And so we get introduced to David, right? And there are all kinds of things about King David that you ought to be impressed with. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands, right? Everybody ought to look at David and go, yeah, that's our boy. Look at David. He is, he is the apex of everything the Israelites thought that they needed. Everything that they thought that they wanted. And David's, David we're told is the man after God's own heart. And who doesn't want that title, right? Like like, like if, if that title were given to me, I'd puff up my chest a little bit and I'd strut around. It'd be a good day. But we're also told, <laughs> We we have a very long biography of David. And David's no less of a train wreck than Saul was. Horrendous sin in David's life. David is as sinful as Saul was. Yes, David you know, lifts Israel to its golden age, and everybody's impressed with Israel, but that peace and that prosperity. It, it comes, it's won by immense bloodshed. David's reign was marked not only by David's own personal sin, but, but sometimes by the sin of Israel corporately by David's failed leadership. To, to know the story of Israel during that time period intimately, to actually pay attention to what's going on. Yes, there's some great things going on, but there's also a lot of shadows that we don't like to talk about. Rather, avoid, if we can, in public. And So the man, after God's own heart, wants to build God a temple. I mean, God had been dwelling in a tabernacle, a tent, up until this time. And David's like, no, 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 we got to honor you more than that. we gotta, we got to give our God more than this tent. And so we're going to build him a temple, and it's going to be spectacular. And God tells him, no, there's too much blood on your hands. I'm not going to let you build it, because when you build it, they're going to associate you with me, and that's not okay with me. But he says, I'll let your son build it, Solomon. And So Solomon ascends to the throne, and his reign is marked, is is, is by a long shot, I would say, the, the most prosperous time in Israel's history. Everything is clicking. Borders are strong, the economy is booming. Israel has finally arrived. Everybody has uh, has some respect for Israel. You got neighboring kings and queens traveling to hear Solomon's wisdom. Everybody is impressed with what Solomon is doing down in Israel. And this is what they've been waiting for, right? This is finally the fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way all those generations back ago to Abram. That God was going to bless this people and they were going to be a blessing to the nations. And so now everybody is going to see how God is great because of how great he's made his people to be, right? That's the narrative that we try to paint most of the time. That's the game that we want to play with ourselves. But if you've read anything during Solomon's time period, especially his own writing, Ecclesiastes, the Proverbs, if you've read anything at all during Solomon's uh, reign, uh, you know that there's some there's some terrible storm clouds on the horizon. This Solomon has his own junk to deal with, and because all of that good, all of that prosperity, all of that blessing, it's mixed with a whole lot of sinful bad. Just like David was equally as sinful as Saul, Solomon is equally as sinful as David. It's almost like there's a theme here in Kings. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, Who cares what you built if your sons are morons? That's a paraphrase, I know, but it's also pretty much what he said. It's vanity. Build and build, work and work, but eventually all that you built up is going to be handed off to people who are dolts. And they're going to be put in charge of controlling it, and it's not going to go well. And that might seem like a pessimistic thing to say. I mean, if you want, you can can make the argument that Solomon is a glass-half-full kind of guy, uh, half-empty kind of guy. That can be pessimistic, but it's also exactly the way Solomon's life plays out. Exactly the way Solomon's life plays out. Uh, Solomon dies, and the unified kingdom of Israel, it's gone within days. Not, Not generations, not years, Days. His son, Rehoboam, just acts like a moron in his first act as king, and the kingdom splits in two. The ten tribes in the north right, reject him as the king. They become the northern kingdom of Israel. Two tribes in the south remain loyal, uh, and, and they you know, Judah and Benjamin, and they become the southern king of Judah. It takes a couple hundred years, maybe-ish, for the northern kingdom to finally fall, disintegrate from their own sin. God raises up the Assyrian empire to to wipe them out and overthrow them. Judah's decline is a little slower. They last a couple hundred years more than Israel did. But decline is the right word. Slowly falling deeper and deeper into idolatry. And every once in a while, every once in a while, they, they get a really good king in there. He'd lead some reform and he'd lead the people back to to righteousness and all these kind of good things. Worthy of celebration, but over and over and over again as you read through Kings and Chronicles. The refrain that you keep hearing every time somebody new steps to the throne. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. King after king after king after king. And yeah, every once in a while, a good boy steps in there. But king after king after king, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Year after year, generation after generation, Judah fell deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin until you get to this king named Amon in Second Kings 21. And we're told that he's so evil that his court conspires against him and has him murdered what a people person right it's a good king right there yeah they 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 develop a coup against him and overthrow him so why is that important because in second Kings 22 because Amon dies his son Josiah becomes the next king Josiah uh, if you aren't familiar with Josiah's story he becomes king at the age of eight eight. So I've got a seven-year-old at home. She might just be the smartest seven-year-old I've ever met. But she is not ready to be a monarch. <laughs> not even a little bit. All right? I love my seven-year-old. We don't want to put the kingdom in her control. All right? It's not going to go well. But that's Josiah's story, Right? That's Josiah's story, and we're not exactly sure what the details are. The Bible doesn't spell all that out for us, but somewhere around the age of 16, Josiah suddenly gets really serious about God. All of a sudden, it becomes important to him. It wasn't his father's story. It wasn't his granddaddy's story, but for some reason, God does something in Josiah, and Josiah is awakened to the realities of God, and he all of a sudden gets very, very serious about God things at the age of 16, and so Josiah begins leading the nation of Judah back towards righteousness, back towards the things of God, and he starts tearing down the high places, all the, the temples and altars up in the hills uh, devoted to other gods, and, and, and Solomon's temple was in ruins during this period, and It's been shuttered for generations, but they start to to clean all that up. And in the process, we're told that the high priest finds a scroll. We're not told what the scroll is, but we're pretty sure it's the Torah, the law. God's law. And they they had set it down at some point and never came back to it. But in this process of cleaning up, they, they go, hey, what's this? And so they pick it up and they blow the dust off and they start reading it. And the Bible tells us that they wept. They they wept upon reading it. Why would they do that? Because that's what God's law is designed to do. That's its purpose to make you intimately aware of how insufficient you are and to point out your clear and desperate need for a Savior. That's The purpose of God's law, when you genuinely encounter God's word, it reveals your brokenness and points you back to a Savior outside of yourself. So Josiah, he calls the nation together and they're like, we need to read this to the people. And so they begin reading it to the people and, and, and what happens? We're told that they're devastated. That there's mass repentance throughout the nation. Josiah reinstitutes the Passover meal. An Old Testament revival begins to sweep through every domain of society. I mean, can you imagine what this would look like in our culture? Can you you just picture that for a second? Government, education, business, agriculture, every single domain of society, we're told, begins repenting and returning to the Lord. I mean, how many of you have begged God for exactly that? How many of you actually just begged our God, would you bring this about? No, they they watched this happen. How many of you would be celebrating if you were to watch this happen, play out with your own eyes? They got to see this. You think they celebrated that? Do you think that those who were righteous when this began to occur and watched this begin to roll out across their nation were, were celebrating and praising God for what they've been begging for for years? So what does all this have to do with Habakkuk? Well, we think that he probably got to watch it play out. We think that he's one of the righteous guys who's been begging God for revival across his land. And then suddenly it takes off. If you're in Habakkuk's shoes, how do you feel right now? He's one of the ones that's celebrating God in this moment. The problem, though, is that moments don't last forever. They don't. There are three major powers in the world during this time period, and Judah ain't one of them. All right? Three major powers. Judah's like Vermont, all right? Uh, it's, no one's scared of Vermont. It's just the truth. Like, like it's pretty. Yeah, like, I, I like visiting there, but there's like 12 people in Vermont, and half of them live in Burlington. And so, like, I'm getting old, but give me a sharp stick and a five-hour energy, energy, I think I can take Vermont, all right? It's just kind of how Vermont is. We all kind of understand that. We'll, we'll leave them alone, but if we wanted to, we could, all right? That's how it works. Nobody is respecting Judah. Nobody's respecting Vermont. All right? uh, you've got three main powers in the world at this time period. The first one is Assyria. All right? We mentioned them a second ago. They were the ones that wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, they're king of the hill right now. Everybody thinks that Assyria is the top dog, but they are in sharp decline. All right? During this point in history, the Assyria is, is just kind of crumbling apart. All right? uh, and so Assyria has a shelf life, and everybody's watching it. All right? When you're top dog and you begin to crumble, everybody who's not top dog Is watching it happen, and they're waiting for their chance. Right? That's how world politics works. Right? And so Assyria is in decline. The second major power are the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. All right, they're on the rise, and they are absolutely brutal, just completely brutal. They are making a name for themselves right now by picking off all all the little countries around them, picking fights and enslaving the nations around them. And so by no standard of judgment would anybody point at the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and say, yeah, those are good people. I like those guys. They're the kind of nation, they they really are, that if God were to strike them down with fire from heaven, you just sit back and go, yeah, that was probably deserved. That seems about right. They, they, you know what, they probably had that one coming. Absolutely brutal people. The Chaldeans are mean, they're growing, and they're gunning for Assyria. And they, they have the means to do something about it. The third big power on the scene is Egypt. They were top dog a long time ago. They've just been hanging around on the fringe for a while. Man, if they, could, if they could assert themselves again, that'd be fun, right? Remember the good old days? Three powers in the world at this time, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. And it just so happens that all three of these major powers border the nation of Judah. you got Assyria to the north, you have Babylon to the east, you have Egypt to the south. Hey, what's going to happen to tiny little Vermont And in 2 Kings 23, we're told that King Necho II, the pharaoh of Egypt, wants to march his army up and battle against the Assyrians. He's got to march through the nation of Judah in order to get there. And Josiah, king of Judah, he doesn't think that that's a very respectful thing to do. And so he decides that he's going to send his army out there and put a stop to this. He's not going to let Egypt, whoever they think they are, march through his nation. He's going to, he, I will not stand for this. The problem, though, is it goes very, very badly for Vermont. It just really does. Josiah gathers his army and he meets the Egyptians in, a, in the valley of Megiddo and in 2 Chronicles 35, we're told that Josiah is killed in battle. He he fights alongside his troops. It's really it's actually a really cool story. Uh, one of these kind of things that you can point to and say, ah, that's good leadership right there. He disguises himself, so instead of sitting back as the king, he actually fights alongside of his troops in order to encourage them and all these kinds of things, but he also dies in this battle. Nico puts Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, on the throne. While he goes off to to go ahead and actually have that battle with Assyria, Judah was barely a blip on the radar to them, just slowed them down for a moment. They were nothing to him. He puts Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, on the throne, and Jehoahaz immediately starts undoing all of his dad's reforms. Just starts tearing them down. Josiah may have been serious about the Lord, but his son absolutely was not. Who cares what you build up if your sons are morons, right? He brings back the high places. He shuts down worship in the temple. He doesn't rule for long, though. Because when Nico is coming back from Assyria, he'd been done with his fighting, he was traveling back home, he decides to take Jehoahaz with him on to Egypt. He's like, ah, you'll, you'll, you'll serve me better if I just bring you back to my place. And so he puts Josiah's other son, Jehoiakim, on the throne as a vassal king. And he's more of a moron than his moron brother. He really is. And for the next 23 years, the next 23 years, Josiah's sons and grandsons systematically run the nation of Judah into the ground. Josiah's grandson, Zedekiah, is the last king of Judah before they're taken off into Babylonian captivity. See, all of the reforms that Josiah had made to lead his people back to righteousness, they're gone, long gone. All the the God-honoring progress that has swept through every domain of society, every corner of the culture, just completely wasted. And as best as we can tell, not not only did Habakkuk get to watch the great revival that rose to heights in Josiah's time, we also think that he watched the meteoric fall that happened immediately on the heels of that that he watched the nation begin to, to, to gather its identity as God's righteous people, and he was celebrating everything that God was doing, and then all of a sudden, without anything in his control to stop it, it just plummeted to the depths. This, we think, is the setting for Habakkuk. As to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. See what Habakkuk sees. Feel what he feels. You walk with God. You long for your nation to return to the Lord, and it actually happens. It happens on a massive level. Every domain of society sees revival. Everything feels right with the world. Everything feels like you're finally walking in what you've been called and designed to to walk in. Everything is great. God has blessed his people. Look at what he's done for us. And then it falls apart in an instant. snuffed out in less than a moment because kings are fragile, even the good ones? What would you be thinking right now? What would your prayer life look like in this moment? And I know it's taken us forever to get here, but I really think it's with that context in the back of our heads that we can actually begin to look at what Habakkuk says. right? And so join me in Habakkuk 1, starting in verse 1. We're just going to look at four verses today. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So, do you feel the weight of what uh, Do you feel the weight of Habakkuk's pain here? Do you begin to get a sense of his desperation, or, or maybe better yet, have you ever found yourself? Saying the same things Habakkuk is saying here. God, where are you? Where, where are you? Have you, ever, have you ever been in a place where you can't help but look to the sky as you tear your hair out and go, What are you doing? Where are you? Why would you stop this? Because I'll be real honest with you you've either had a moment exactly like that or you're lying. I really think that's true. Oh, wait a second, Stephen. People have different temperaments. People have different personalities. And really, you, you, you shouldn't question God like that. That's not allowed. That's out of bounds. Except for the fact that we have example after example after example in the Bible where people do exactly that. Whole book of the Bible dedicated to lament. A third of the Psalms have that tone. Where are you? What are you doing? Why why won't you step in here? Why don't you put a stop to this? God's not some tender child that you need to protect his feelings. He doesn't need you to do that for him. You're not going to hurt his feelings. Now, Now, to be clear, he doesn't owe you an answer either. He's not beholden to us. None of us, myself especially, gets to act like we can put God on the stand and question him, and he deserves to answer us. That's not the game. But his feelings, oh, they're safe. They're safe. God's a big boy. He can handle it. So so why does it feel a little sacrilegious for us to be talking about these kinds of things, right? <laughs> Wait a second, Woodard. That's not, I don't know if we should be doing this right now. I would submit. I would submit that it has less to do with some kind of biblical reasoning and way more to do with a larger church culture that thinks that we've got to hide our pain and frustration. I I think that's it. I think we have a larger church culture that thinks that pain and frustration or, or even confusion over spiritual matters, spiritual realities, are somehow out of bounds for mature Christians. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be wrestling with that stuff. We should have this stuff settled as if those things would be a crack in our armor and the whole thing would fall apart if we gave notice to them for a moment. I think it's the same culture that's led us to believing that the word fine is an adequate answer to how are you doing today. I think the tentacles of this logic have woven their way into all kinds of unhealthy things. And what I love about Habakkuk, man, it's, he's just honest about that stuff. He's just honest about it. There's no facade. There's no attempt to, to pretty things up. So, you know, to try to pretend that he's got answers that he doesn't have. There's no religious gamesmanship going on here. He's hurting, and he takes his complaint to his God. You know, as if he actually believes that God cares about that. That he knows him and hears him and wants to do something about that. What, a, what an idea. How long shall I cry to you for help and you will not hear, he says. And if you watched what Habakkuk had watched, would you have a different question in mind? Would you have a different thing to ask? And so in verse 3, he He sees destruction. He sees strife and contention. And so it leads him to assume for a moment that God's law is somehow paralyzed. It's paralyzed. He knows what the law says. He knows what what righteousness looks like and what God has promised to those who belong to him who don't pursue it. And so he's looking around. There's not a whole lot of righteousness going on. There's not a whole lot of righteousness that he can see in front of him. And so he's starting to wonder, is God incapable of acting on this? Surely you've had that question before. What what are you doing? Justice is stunted. Wickedness prevails. Where are you? Where are you? But don't hear this as some kind of critique of those dirty outsiders out there uh, that don't see the world the same way. No, he's talking about God's people, his own people. He's looking at at a people who, at least for a little while, maybe only a few months before this, at least for a little while, were marked by righteousness. They were celebrating revival, and now, man, everything has changed. Everything has changed. It's not much different in our day. If we were to look around, we're going to see injustice. We would see violence. We would see contention and strife. But we wouldn't have to point to the dirty outsiders. It's in the camp. It exists among those who claim to be his people. And so Habakkuk's question is no different from our own. Is God's law paralyzed today? Where where is he? Why, Why won't he step in and do something about this? And make no mistake about it, there are very clear answers to Habakkuk's questions. Habakkuk is blessed in that God is going to answer him in the very next verse, but we're going to talk about that next week. Before we get to the answer, though, before we get to, to answers to these absolutely massive questions, I, think, I really think, church, that first, before all that, we need to see that lament is not only okay for God's people, it's actually necessary it's necessary. Yeah, we, we want to be problem solvers. We, we want to to knock this one out and file it away and act like it's not an issue anymore. I, I get that. It's in my personality too. Uh, it really is. But before we can do that, I really believe that we need to see that there's a posture that the correct solution must flow out of or the problem can't actually be solved. What are you saying, Woodard? I'm saying that for God's people, there is a right response to darkness. A right response to darkness. And God allows Habakkuk to model that force. Lament. Lament, heartbreak, and crying out to God. Whenever, whenever our eyes are open to the brokenness around us, whenever we experience or, or even watch others experience a perversion of justice, whenever the sin-fractured world causes hurt and heartache, contention and strife, our natural response, at least for God's people, our natural response ought to be to cry out to God in pain. To cry out to Him. And as somebody who likes to be a problem solver, I can promise you, that's a really hard thing to do. How about yourself? But the reality is, whether you've thought through it or not, the reality is that a failure to lament when lament is called for is actually something that creates gigantic problems for the follower of Jesus. Significant problems. Despite whatever our personalities are geared towards wanting to, to do in that moment of crisis. Uh, whether you're the run and hide person or the attack it with the sharp stick person. No matter who you are, uh, when we fail to lament, when lament is called for, it creates new problems that are absolutely dangerous. So wh- what are we in danger of losing? I think there's two things. One is that deep worship actually becomes impossible. It becomes impossible. Uh, when, when difficulty, when, when doubt, when fear strikes us, uh, When, when <laughs> we have this unbelievable opportunity, this God-given moment to dive headfirst into the deep and abiding and sufficient love of God. And this is why I absolutely hate books and sermons with titles like Seven Steps to Joy or Five Steps Out of Doubt. It's not because I'm, I'm not a personality that you know wants to take action steps and run with them. I, I'm very much that person. Right? I, I love those kinds of things. It's just I, I really believe that programs and math problems are incapable of digging people out of spiritual holes. It doesn't work that way. Spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. But to see Jesus standing there as everything else gets ripped away, to see and savor his goodness, to, to see and marvel at his bigness, to to see and feel his closeness, to see and, and experience his provision in that moment. Oh, guys, that'll change you. Forever, it'll change you. And for you to run in the other direction from that, whether you're the one who wants to try to be the problem solver in that moment, or you're the one who just wants to pretend that the problem isn't actually there, both of those postures rob you of worshiping God who is letting you experience that. Both of those postures rob you of your ability to actually worship God in that moment because you're trying to be your own savior. And so if we'll press into God in those moments, he might just turn them into fountains of joy. And I I get it. I know that that sounds quite insane to those who don't love and pursue Jesus yet. I'm aware. But when he's opened your eyes to see who he really is, yeah, he's enough. without taking the time to lament, to call out to God, deep worship becomes impossible. But that problem actually pales in comparison to the second one. Because number two, you will force yourself into a corner where you've got to pretend that things are okay when they're clearly not. you got to put up the veneer. Oh, You don't understand, Stephen. I'm a good problem solver. No, you're not. No, you're not. The entire Bible argues against that prideful uh, uh, prideful idea. It's a Genesis 3 anti-gospel. The cross was necessary because you're a terrible problem solver. That's the point. It's foolishness to think otherwise, and it's destined to fail. But because we're too prideful to admit that, we'll instead try to hide it. (laughs) sweep it under the rug, whatever we got to do. We'll cover it up and pretend like, like we've got everything figured out. So we'll learn the vocabulary, we'll learn the motions, and if we're smart, we'll figure out how to posture ourselves in such a way that people stop asking. Right? We give off the appearance or the illusion that we're fine. I mean, sure, life is tough, but our chin's up. We're doing good. Everything's okay. But the facade of fine it cannot sustain you when your world is falling apart. It just can't. Nor will it be sufficient on that final day with a capital D. It just won't. Veneers don't last very long when you begin to pick at them. And in that moment... It's just the knee-jerk reaction of our prone-to-wonder hearts, or at least it is for mine. But in that moment, we'll take whatever our heartbreak is, we'll take whatever our addiction is, we'll take whatever our frustration and our longing is, and we'll spend all of our energy and all of our attention and all of our effort trying to desperately hide that thing. You know, just, just, uh, just get it down just below the surface so nobody else sees it. I'm sure I'm the only person who's ever... Thought that way, though, right? It's exhausting, isn't it? But as exhausting as it is, and even though that effort is incredibly futile, the worst part in that moment is that you will lose sight of the cross. You will lose sight of the cross. See, the main reason, the, the, the biggest, most daunting, terrible reason why a failure to lament is so tragic, the main reason why our desperate attempts to, to safeguard ourselves and, and with pretense and with, with buffers uh, is so damaging, the main reason that, that a failure to lament is so tragic is because that posture is the exact opposite of how you got to Jesus in the first place. It is. The very first action of your regenerate heart was to call on Jesus in lament and beg him to save you. The very first action when God opened your eyes and gave new birth to you was to call on him in desperation. Because you're not big enough and you need him to save you. You need him to do something about you. uh, Lament is necessary for God's people because the opposite posture is built upon a blind and sinful assumption that the answer to all of our problems exists in you to fix. It's just a lie. Quite satanic one. It's the serpent in the garden all over again. And Habakkuk, he knows better than that. Habakkuk knows better than that. He sees his own insufficiency, and he cries out to God in his pain, Where are you? Where are you? Why don't you do something about this? I'm beginning to think that your promises are vain, that they're empty. And again, there's a clear answer to that question. God is going to answer Habakkuk's complaint. But first, oh church, oh first we need to see that Habakkuk knows exactly where to go when the world is falling apart. Where do you go? Where do you go? Who or or what do you run to when the foundations begin to crumble? Where do you look for an answer to the problem staring back at you? Who do you cry out to? Is it yourself? Is it something else? Or is it the one who can actually do something about it? Where do you go? Listen, our God's a big boy. You can't hurt his feelings. He can handle it. You don't have to guard him, protect him from your emotions. He's okay. And truth be told, in his wisdom, he may not give you an answer in that moment. We don't all have Habakkuk's story. But we can share Habakkuk's trust that God is listening we can share Habakkuk's trust that God is capable of doing something about it. Capable of ending violence and iniquity. Capable of putting a stop to contention and strife. Capable and willing to bring about perfect and unperverted justice. So, so what do we do with this stuff, right? What do we do this? How do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think your response is to repent of sin and lean into God. Right? We we say that every week, but every week it's true. We we repent of the times that that we thought and acted like like our problems were really only our problems and we needed to take care of them. I, no, I got this. God, I'll let you handle the big stuff, but I can, I can handle the small stuff. I'm on it. Don't you worry. I'm in over my head, but I'll figure it out. You don't worry about it. We lean into the God who's bigger and better and smarter than all of our best laid plans. Maybe you're walking through something right now, even this morning, and you're desperately trying to keep just just below the surface, right? Make sure nobody notices. Oh, hear me. The objective, pr- the cross is the objective proof that God loves you and is handling the stuff that's too big for you. Maybe it would be smart to let him handle the other stuff too. I mean, just maybe. Maybe you're not walking in in heartbreak right now. You'll get your turn next week. It'll come. Just file it away. I, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be a time for you to respond to God's word. Put, put action to it. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by, by, uh, by following Jesus in baptism. Maybe it's by joining this church family. Maybe it's by saying yes to the call of missions that God is laying out in front of you, putting on your heart. Maybe that's the way you need to respond. Man, I'd love to walk with you as you uh, figure that response out. I'd love to, to help you. I'll be down front here. and uh, If you're watching online, man, contact me after we're done. I'd love to help you figure out what that response actually looks like. If you're here, though, this morning uh, or you're watching us online and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you're not a Christian, uh, man, I'm glad you're hanging out with us. I, I really am. Uh, I, <laughs> I, think it's, I don't think that's an accident. I think, I think our God has put you here so you can deal with some stuff. And, and so you can respond to God's word today too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that by default, your sin separates you from a holy God. Right? It deserves His righteous wrath, and justice will one day be given perfectly. It will no longer be perverted. It will be handled outright and good. And you might think, well, I can figure that out. I can put in a little extra here. All right. I can add a little extra effort on this side. And I can I can add some good things to the file on that side. I, I can I, man, I can, I can pull this off. I can fix this out. But listen, you're a terrible problem solver. You can't fix you. No one has lied to you more than you've lied to yourself. No one has sabotaged you more than you have sabotaged yourself. You can't fix you, neither can I. I can't do it, neither can you. But the Bible also teaches that God made a way to save sinners like you and me. Because he is rich in mercy, because he loves us with a great love, he came himself. Jesus put on flesh, he dwelt among us, he lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfect sinless substitute to pay the debt for your sin, and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect righteousness. And so now, as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that this morning. You can turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus as Savior and Lord. You can respond to Jesus. I'm going to be down front here. If you're in the room and you want to meet Jesus, man, you don't need me, but I'd love to help you walk through that response. If you're watching online, man, give me a call after we're done. Write me an email, whatever it is for you. Again, you don't need me. He's there with you. Call on Him as Savior and Lord, even right now. But listen, if you want some help walking through what that response of faith looks like, I'm here. Get a hold of me. We'll talk. However God is calling you to respond this morning. Let's do that together. Father, thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for For a letter that I think we're going to find sounds all too familiar. Thank you for being the God who is listening when we lament. You don't have to answer us. You're high in the heavens, you're exalted and mighty, you owe no one anything. But I also don't think you're burdened when your people cry out to you. When we wrestle and struggle with our own sin and the sin around us, our own pain and the pain around us, the, our own brokenness and the brokenness around us, when, when we struggle and we cry out, I, I kind of get the feeling that you like to hear from us in those moments. You remind us of your goodness, and you remind us of your bigness, and you remind us of your great love for us. So God, as we look around ourselves at a world that is clearly broken, will we be faithful to cry out to the one who can actually do something about it? as we look around and see the brokenness in our own hearts? Will we cry out to the one who can actually do something about it? God, would you help your people lean into the gospel in every season? With those who don't know you yet, would You would you make yourself known to them right now in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you call people into your kingdom right now? God, help us respond well in lament and joy. In Jesus' name we pray.